uh, really, really happy to see you. And uh, for those of you out in the parking lot, it was nice seeing you in your nice big warm coats. Y'all look cute out there all bundled up. And so um, if you are new here, we typically teach in what's called a series. And by that, it just means it takes more than one week to get through a, you know, a, a thought, an idea. And so this is week seven, wrapping up a series called Jesus for President. And here was the big idea, still the big idea. And hopefully we'll put some feet to it today, okay? That uh, what, kind of what we hope and have challenged us with is um, during election season, we should place our vote in a candidate, and you did. Um, but we shouldn't place our hope in that candidate, right? So we, so we go, okay, well, where do we place our hope? That's really, really good. We're talking about placing our hope in Jesus, but how in the world do we do that today? We're going to really, really wrap it up. And so last week, what I told you is I don't know how you felt about the election. I don't know if you felt good, if, you, if your guy got elected and your guy didn't get elected, whatever that is, or not even sure if your guy got elected or not, and all sorts of complications. Oh, sorry about that. Sorry. Right? And so what, what I told you last week, the good news, and we're really, I'm going to help you really understand that this week, is uh, the good news about all this, regardless of who's the president, what the plans are, here's the big, big good news, is that you and I have at least as much authority as Joe Biden or Donald Trump, or uh, the Supreme Court, or uh, the House of Representatives, or the Senate. You and I have at least as much authority, if not more, to do something important in this world, to transform what's going on, to transform our families, our neighborhoods, our jobs, our workplaces, our church, our communities, all those things. You and I have at least as much authority, if not more authority, to actually make a meaningful impact in our world, right? Because what we learned last week is that Jesus has all the authority in the whole world, right? He is literally God, and he can actually make things happen by just speaking. You see it in the very beginning that God spoke the world into existence, and it tells us that Jesus is the literal word, right? That he is God himself, and it says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and then it tells us a little bit later, and the word made its dwelling among us. So Jesus shows up with all the authority and all the power in the world. All, all the ability in the world to transform everything. He has all the power and authority. And here's the real crazy part of that. Not only does he have all the power in the entire world, he decides and made the decision to um, delegate that authority, that power, to you and I. So right now in 2020, we have at least as much authority, probably more, than either one of these guys to actually do something that matters in our world. And today we're going to figure out how do we do that. Can't place your hope in it, or you've got to place a vote in a candidate, but you cannot place your hope in a candidate because we're going to place our hope in Jesus. Now, if you're new to the whole Christian thing, not real sure how you feel about it at the church, I'd say today's still really, 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 really worth your time. Because what you and I would agree on, right, is that uh, there is something significant about Jesus, right, even if you don't believe he's God, that we actually define our time based on Jesus's life, right? So we're in the year 2020. The reason it's the year 2020 is because time is actually split up, right, uh, before Christ or before the common era, right, and then AD in the year of the Lord, right, that our time is actually split up by Jesus. And if you were to go read history, what we do know is that something happened pretty significant 2,000 years ago that a bunch of ragamuffins, crazy people are willing to give up their life, their freedom, all those things to follow this guy named Jesus, right? And uh, what we're going to start next week is a new series preparing ourselves for Christmas. Christmas, Christ, Mass, the worship of Christ, right? And so even if you don't believe in all this stuff, you would at least, and I would at least go, do something about this guy, right? There is something about him. And now what I'd argue is, he is our hope and our joy and our peace, and he is the solution to all the brokenness and problems we have in our world. Now, you might not be there yet. That's fine. But you'd at least admit that he um, was a significant human being, right? And what we're going to see is you're going to see how this crazy revolution started with Jesus and just a few people. And so the big idea today is there is only one invitation in the scriptures. So I I grew up in the Southern Baptist world, and so the, the way that those church services went is there was, you know, announcements, a couple of hymns that you'd sing, 
Uh, then uh, there would be the offertory hymn. That's when the guys walked up and sang the last hymn, and they would pray the prayer, and then they'd go past the, the, the buckets or the plates. And then after that, there'd be a special music. Someone would get up and sing, and sometimes they didn't sound very well, but other times they sounded good, right? And so there was that, and then there was the, the preaching. So there was the preacher uh, typically got really, really sweaty and said, like, now Jesus, like those kind of things, like um, a lot of fun. And then after that, there would be what's called the invitational hymn, right? And the invitational hymn was typically, I don't know, if, uh, a song like Have Thine Own Way or Just As I Am. And the, the, the preacher would invite the music guy up and he would be leading the song and the preacher would go stand on the floor and literally it was an invitation. You could come up and you could pray a prayer, you could ask Jesus into your heart, all those kind of things, but it was the invitation, right? And I can remember times where the preacher would go, hey, we're going we're gonna to keep singing this song because the Spirit has told me that someone needs to come up and accept Jesus in their life, right? And so we'd be singing it 10, 15 minutes and you'd be nudging your buddy going, hey, it's your turn, go up there, we've got to close this thing out, we've got to go eat some lunch, right? And so there, in, the, in the Baptist world, lots of world, that's called the invitation, right? And so when we talk about it in, in church world, everybody talks about how you can, there's this invitation, this invitational hymn, this invitation. But the reality is, there's actually only one invitation found in the scriptures. One. And that invitation, so, 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 so amazing, is that Jesus actually shows up, and we're going to see it today, and invites people to follow him. So the big idea, that the way by which we place our hope in Jesus, the way by which we leverage the authority that God has given us, is by doing one thing. By taking him up on the invitation to follow him, right? And what he tells us is he can do immeasurably more than we can ever hope or imagine. And so for some of you, you've started that journey of following Jesus. For others, perhaps, certainly hope so. Today's the day you go, yep, I'm ready to follow Jesus. So we're going to see what it looks like to receive that invitation and respond to it. And so uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 4. Just to get you up to speed, um, we've been in the gospel of Luke for months now, right? We're just going uh, verse by verse, just kind of trekking our way through it. And so here's kind of what the gospel of Luke is. Luke uh, was a doctor, physician, turned investigative journalist, right? True story, this is not folklore, myth, legend, none of those things. And Luke was literally hired, like as a you know, like a doctoral thesis type thing. He, he got his, you know, uh, his fellowship to go do this. And so this guy named Theophilus, rich, what we believe, probably a rich uh, Roman government official. Theophilus is a guy who had lots of affluence, lots of influence, lots of power, lots of authority, all those things, right? And so Theophilus would have been a guy who was required to say Caesar is Lord, right? Because in that world you worshipped uh, your emperor, your king, whatever that is. And so he would have been required to say Jesus, I mean, Caesar is Lord. But he would have known, like we know, that no human being is, all, they're all fallible. So it's not like we can actually declare that a human is Lord of Lord and King of Kings. And so Theophilus would have been wondering whether or not it was time to no longer place his hope in Caesar, but instead place his hope in Jesus right? And which would have had all sorts of ramifications. It would have limited his affluence. It would have limited his influence in the Roman, uh, you know, government. But he decides that he wants to figure out whether or not he should start placing his hope in Jesus. So he hires a guy, a doctor and scientist, to go spend years, if not a decade, investigating the story of Jesus, right? And so he would have, he hires this guy to go sit down with eyewitnesses, listen to all the preachers and all the different people talk, and also go read all the oral do uh, written documents, right? So he hires him, and Luke writes this story, right? And he says he puts it in an orderly account, meaning it's kind of in order, you know, chronologically, so that we could, and Theophilus could, have certainty of the things we've been taught. In other words, he writes this book to help Theophilus have certainty of where he should place his hope. Now, when we talk about the scriptures, we talk about them in two ways. We say they're both timely, meaning... Uh, they were written specifically to a group of people like Theophilus where it was very important that they read the scriptures and understood what it would mean for their life in that moment, timely. And yet we also would say that scriptures are timeless, meaning they stand outside time, meaning that the same story that, Theoph uh, that Luke puts together for Theophilus is just as important, just as impactful, just as helpful 
today in 2020 as it was then. And so what we get is Luke writes 1,151 verses to help us have certainty. And 568 of those verses are direct quotations from Jesus. And so today we're going to read some of the things that Jesus said. Like I told you, we're going to read his invitation timely to some, some fishermen and the invitation timeless for us. So where he left off last week, Jesus was busy, 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 busy. He um, was uh, preaching in a synagogue on the Sabbath and poured himself out there, actually showed his authority over demonic spirits, spoke life into people, spoke death out of them. And so Jesus does that in the morning, kind of his, you know, synagogue day teaching and, you know, in, in Capernaum. And then after, you know, the Sunday morning gathering or Saturday morning gathering and the, and the teaching, he goes to a home. He goes to this guy named Simon Peter. You'll learn more about him today. He goes to Simon Peter's home. And uh, you think maybe he's going to grab lunch. It's going to be a, a restful afternoon. But instead, when he gets there, Simon Peter's mother-in-law is about to die. And Simon Peter really wants his mother-in-law not to die. I mean, that's a good guy, right? He's like, oh, Jesus, no, no, we want you to fix my mother-in-law too. I mean, that's, that's pretty neat that he's, you know, cares about his mother-in-law that way. And so this lady is about to die, and Jesus shows up, and we saw last week that he had not only had authority, authority, really important word today, authority over demonic spirits, over, you know, the dark forces. He can speak life into things, speak death out of them. But he also has authority over sickness, right? And so what we see is he speaks life into Simon Peter's mother. He speaks death out of Simon Peter's mother-in-law, right? And so what we see is so funny, and I wish I could spend more time here. I won't, and it wouldn't be appropriate. But immediately, like, she gets better, and she starts making some food for him, right? Like, she gets right back in the kitchen, right? And there's all sorts of misogynistic things I could say, but I'm not because I'm godly. And so um, you see that she literally gets life spoke back into her, and we get kind of this big aha that, what, when Jesus speaks life into you, speaks death out of you, what is your response? Well, the reason he does it is so that you and I can participate in serving other people, participate in making earth what God desired it to be, which means inviting heaven into this planet, inviting heaven into our lives, inviting uh, heaven into our homes, right? And the way by which we invite it is actually to serve other people. So we're going to see this term that shows up last week, and we're going to see it over and over again, this term for ministry or service. And so we see Jesus speaks death out of someone, speaks life into someone because he has all the authority. And then he is going to delegate that authority to his followers. And we're going to have that authority to speak life into things, and we're going to have that authority to do ministry and serve. And so what we saw last week is Jesus served and poured himself out in ministry. He had all the authority in the world. And he pours himself out in ministry. And then we see that it, he, it, at some point he's going to fall asleep, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to find him the next day, early in the morning, after the Sabbath is over, and we're going to go, okay, what do you do when you pour yourself out in that way? What do you do when you have, you know, just exhausted yourself? And I think this is helpful because many of us are exhausted, right? You're exhausted. You're exhausted by all the complications in our world. You're exhausted right now about even trying to figure out what you're going to do for Thanksgiving or if you can do anything for Thanksgiving. You're exhausted by trying to pivot over and over again with your kids and school and your job. And you're exhausted by being on a computer so much, right? Just exhausted. You're exhausted. And so we're going to find Jesus really, really interesting. Exhausted. And so what does he do? What can we learn from it? That's what we're going to see today. So we're in Luke chapter 4, and I'll start with verse 42. So here goes. Remember, he was at Peter's house, and he's going to, here's what it says. Uh, and when it was day, so this is early in the morning, he wakes up. He departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. So what we do is we find Jesus. He wakes up in the morning, probably at daybreak, before anybody else is, uh, is getting going. And he is going to, what it says, he's going to depart and go to a desolate place, meaning he's going to be alone. And now, because I want to make sure we get through all the scriptures in a, in a timely manner, I'm kind of uh, combining two sermons here. So we've got two sermons today. Uh, the first one is about recharging and rest, and the other one's about following. And so... Big, big idea for the first part is this, is that Jesus, which is so amazing, like he is the God of the universe, and yet he becomes man. 
in a way that he actually is hungry and thirsty and exhausted. So we see Jesus pour himself out ministry, and now we're going, well, how in the world, if he pours himself out, is he going to get recharged? So how does Jesus do that? So we know clearly as Jesus goes into a place by himself, right? And if you uh, uh, read the Bible app on your phone from version every day, maybe you get the, um, the verse of the day. Today's verse of the day is actually about this. It's about remaining or abiding. This is where Jesus says, hey, you should remain in me. And he gives us the picture of, you know, like we're like the branches and we rest in Jesus because we can't produce fruit without him. And he actually says in those, those passages, uh, rest in me, remain in me, abide in me, because for, uh, apart from me, you can do nothing, what he actually says. And so you go, well, what does it actually mean to remain or abide in him? And uh, candidly, this, I'm not very good at this at all. Like, I'm not very good at the, the recharging or the, the resting. The reality is even when I sit still, my brain doesn't. So it's actually easier to stay busy with my body because my brain's already staying busy. And so uh, one of the things that I've been working on for the last six months is, okay, um, how do you actually rest and recharge? If you're going to pour yourself out, how do you fill your tank back up? And uh, so, uh, you know, I've been working with counselors on this. And about, I don't know, a month ago, finally I had this kind of, I don't know, I'd, 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 I'd put it in the breakthrough category of, ah, oh, okay, now I understand. Because the idea of just sitting still just doesn't make sense to me. There's work to do. And so what I felt like the Lord said, and hear, hear me when I say this, like, not, not, it went audibly. I'm only about 80% certain it was God, right? So I don't want you to go, wow, Josh has this direct voice from God. I don't have that. We, God speak, will speak to you the same way he speaks to me. But I felt like what he kind of revealed to me is um, how do you recharge? And I think there is actually three parts of it, right? And the first one is this. You got to rest, right? So how do you rest? What does that look like? So rest, that means sitting still before God, right? The idea that God has all the authority and power. He has all those things. He alone can change the world. He alone can bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. He alone saves. I can't do any of those things. I can't fix you. I can't fix me, but I can rest in him. I'm like, okay, well, so how do I know when to do something again, right? How do I know that my tank's full? How do I know that? And so what I felt like he was kind of communicating to me, and maybe this will be helpful to you, the first step in that, and recharging or remaining, or, or taking up residence with Christ, the first part is rest. Then from there, it's not just rest. It's actually receive. Receive. Like, uh, receive. Like, that's the thing I love about the idea of abiding in Christ is not like sitting with him because when you sit with him and like imagine it this way like if my daughters were to hop up here and sit in my lap right and kind of look out at you the neat thing there is that if they're sitting here they would have the same perspective I would right they could see as I see because they'd be sitting here looking out with us uh, with me so this idea of resting means you rest and then you sit still with Jesus and so you can see as he sees. So when you see as he sees, I'm convinced that you'll do as he says, right? And so we can see as God sees, we do as he says. And so the only way by which we can start seeing as he sees is resting and reading, right? So the first part is resting. And then at some point, some point there's this receiving of his spirit, receiving of his guidance. And you're going, well, how do I do that? And I say, primarily, the way by which I hear from God is actually through his written word, right? Occasionally there'll be some you know, wise teacher that will share something with me. Occasionally I'll hear a sermon that's helpful, but for the most part, it's just reading his word. So resting and receiving, and then after receiving, you got another part, right? Then you respond. Rest, receive, respond. Those are R's, because I told you I was Southern Baptist for a long time, and so we like our alliteration, okay? So you rest, you receive, you respond. And so what we see happen for Jesus is he goes into this desolate spot, he sits still, he poured himself out in ministry, right? He's exhausted, and so he's going to rest, he's going to receive, and then he's going to respond. And you go, well, how do you know if you should respond, or how you should respond, or if it's the right way to respond? And this is the thing, the matrix I've been working through, even on Imagine How We Do New Initiatives here for the last, I don't know, couple months. It's the three questions I ask, right? Okay, after I've received, is it time to respond? And what I'll ask is, is it the right time? Like, is it the right time to share this? Is it the right time to do this? Is it the right time to say that, right? To say it? So first one is, is it the right time? Second question I ask these days is, is it the right way? Like, is this the right way to do that? Like, is this the, 
if, if I'm receiving from God and responding and he wants me to share with my neighbor that he loves him, right? Share with my neighbor that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So, hey, is it the right time to do it? Have I, is it got a, has there been enough of investment that nails the right time? Hey, is this the right way? Do I just go knock on his door and just blurt it out, right? Is it the right time, right way? And this is actually the kicker for me. The one that's been uh, the most challenging and helpful and fruitful. Last question, again, alliteration. Is it for the right reasons? Is it for the right reasons, right? Because there's a lot of stuff we could initiate at our church, a lot of stuff we could do, but, it, you know, I, I think it's Margaret Thatcher. I don't actually know, know who says it. But growth for the sake of growth is actually the ideology of, the, of a cancer cell. You get that? Like, so uh, if the objective is just to grow, get bigger, more breadth, and you know, in, in contrast, sometimes less depth, right? Is it, is it for the right reasons? Are we doing these things in the, at the right time, in the right way, for the right reasons, right? So really helpful to just kind of pause and kind of consider that as you rest and receive and respond. And so we find Jesus resting and receiving. And now he's going to respond at the right time, in the right way, and wholeheartedly for the right reasons. So he has rested, and he's there and he's getting recharged and people are coming and it literally says hey, they would have kept them from leaving. Like, Jesus has work to do. He's got to respond for the right reasons but they would have wanted him to stay in Capernaum. So watch what happens next. Verse 43. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent this, for I was sent for this purpose. See that? Purpose. He's sent for a purpose. So he's responding and he goes, hey, the way by which I'm responding is pretty critical here because it's for a purpose. Right? And so I was working through this material and thinking through life and uh, was reminded of a preacher in Hawaii who wrote a book called Leading... Uh, Something leading on empty by Wayne Cordero, and I was working through okay, trying to figure out okay, how do you rest, how do you respond, how do you fill your tank, and I was reminded of, of kind of what he wrote in the book. You don't have to read it; I'll just tell you to you real quick of kind of what happens in our life, and so much of what happens in our life is that we're not actually living on purpose. Some of the reasons you're exhausted is because you have you're kind of aimlessness, so you're just spinning plates and you're just running from thing to thing, putting out fires, or in my case, starting fires all over the place, right? Just thing after thing after thing after thing. It's funny, uh, uh, real quick, kind of an aside. Uh, uh, ben Dieterle, he's on our staff. He oversees outreach and just, you know, general just getting stuff done around here. And he was like, I just feel like the last couple of weeks, all I've been doing is putting out fires. I'm like, that's so crazy, Ben. Because I feel like all I've done the last two weeks is start fires. So what a, what a neat little thing, you know. And so he likes to get his ducks in a row. I don't know how to do that. I just like to collect ducks, right? And so you, you had these things. I'm working through it and go, okay, God, how do we fill tanks? How do we do those things? And okay, there's something about living on purpose. And I was reminded of his book. And he says that people typically live in one of four ways. One is a life of reaction. Right? A life of reaction. Meaning you're just responding to whatever just happened. Right? You get the call. You wake up. Alarm goes off. And you go, oh, I gotta go. Like just reacting, reacting, reacting. Right? Or another one is a life of conformity, right? You're just doing what other people think you should do. You're just continuing to uh, jump into the streams of uh, culture and current, and you're just continuing to conform over and over again, right? So a life of reaction. Or a life of conformity. Or the third one is this. He says is a life of independence, right? No, no. In one sense, what, some people go, no, I'll just do whatever you tell me. In another sense, there are people that go, I'll, I won't do anything you tell me. No way. I'll do, like, just... Just a life of absolute independence. I don't care about anybody else. I, don't, I just do what I want to do when I do it, right? And typically, if you live in this life of independence, you're pretty lonely because most people don't want to live in your life of independence. If you live in this life of conformity, you are exhausted because you're just trying to please people. If you live in this life of reaction, you are just anxious all the time. He says, so hey, there's, these are typical ways. There's only four ways by which you can live. You can live a life of reaction, life of conformity, life of independence, or what he argues is a life of intentionality. 
like living with intention. You can live a life with intentionality. So what we see here, Jesus goes and rests and receives and responds. And he responds to people going, hey, hey, come, come put out my fire. And Jesus is like, no, 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 that, that's not how I'm going to live. Hey, hey, come stay here in Capernaum forever. No, no, that's not how Jesus is going to live. And Jesus could have gone, I'm just exhausted. I'll just stay away from other people. Doesn't live this life of independence. What he does, though, is he goes, no, no. I, uh, I, I need to go preach the gospel for I was sent for this purpose. So how do we live a life of intentionality? The only way to do that is actually know what our purpose is. And I'm going to tell you what your purpose is today. So we'll keep going. Let's see what happens next. Verse 44, it says this. And he was preaching in the synagogue of Judea. So what we hear here, really, really important. Jesus says, I have good news to share. So I'm going to go preach good news. I'm going to share good news. That is actually like a a battle term. It means to declare a victory. Declare that... uh, that you've won, declare that there's hope in a future, right? So Jesus is saying, no, i got to go do that. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. So he's kind of moving around new state area in Israel. And so he's continuing to travel and preach and announce good news. You got it? So he's going, this is my purpose. He actually tells us this way later in Luke. For the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost. So Jesus is going, hey, we're going after lost people. We're going after people who don't, by, by lost, it just means this, guys. It just means you, you either uh, don't know how to follow the map or you've lost the map, right? So lost just means you don't know where you are, right? And so what Jesus is going is, I came to seek and save that which was lost. In other words, I came to show you the map. He says he's the way, the truth, and life. And show you purpose. So we're going to go, the way by which you move from lost to found is finding your spot on the map and finding the direction you're supposed to be going, right? And so that's what Jesus is doing. I'm going, I'm going to declare this good news to bring hope and salvation and purpose to people. And so he's preaching, right? No, it says this. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. So um, what we saw last week is uh, Capernaum is a little, a little fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. So this lake of Gennesaret is actually still the, the, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, such a big, it's, it's such a big lake that depending on where you are in it, it has a different name because there's different shores. It's kind of like uh, up here, uh, 896 is called uh, Newark Road, right? But it, once you get down to Newark, it's called, you know, uh, I think New London Road, right? Because it has to do with your geographical location. And so this is same same Sea of Galilee, same lake, huge, huge lake. It's nine miles wide, 13 miles long, this big, big lake. And so it says on one occasion, he is on the side of this lake, okay? So this is where we find him. He's been preaching and preaching and preaching. That's his purpose. He wants to help seek and save that which was lost. So he's preaching, 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 and he happens to be on the side of the lake. So uh, Lucas tells us, hey, there's this one occasion early on in Jesus' ministry that he is preaching and declaring hope and giving people purpose and showing them the place on the map, showing them the direction. So he's preaching at this lake, right? So that's where we find him right now. And uh, he saw two boats by the lake, right? This is a fishing village. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Washing their nets means they're done. They've, they've finished up their day. They're, they, typically, a lot of times what happens is people fish throughout the night, come in in the morning, that kind of stuff. And so they would have been finishing up all this. They're, they're done. You got it? They're, they're done with the fishing. And so we find ourselves with Jesus on the side of this lake. There's people there, always people around Jesus, asking for something, trying to understand something, trying to get something from him, trying to get him to do a miracle, whatever those things are. So we find Jesus on the side of this lake, and all of a sudden we have two boats there. Okay? You got it? Two boats. And watch this. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. So we're going to see, and we're going to see a lot of this guy uh, for the next couple of years as we read through it, uh, this guy named Simon. Now he's going to get a new name after he declares Jesus as Lord, and Jesus goes, yep, uh, on that declaration, I'm going to build my church on, on, on it, right? And so he changes his name to Peter or Petra, which means rock. And so when you see the word Simon or the word Simon Peter or Peter, all the same person. That's why I just combined them. So Jesus actually finds Simon Peter. Now, Simon Peter is a fisherman, and boy, do I love him. He's ready, shoot, aim. I told you there are some people that just start fires. Simon is, Peter is one of those people who starts fires. Later on, you know, a couple years later, he's going to have this crazy response. He's going to have a couple of really bad days. And one day, he's going to cut off a man's ear, and Jesus is going to go, 
that's not very nice of you, Simon. And Jesus is going to pick up the ear and go abracadabra and put it back on. It's going to be really, really neat. He's going to fix it. And then Jesus is going to get arrested and put on a cross and brutally beaten, murdered. While that's happening, someone comes to Simon Peter and goes, hey, that you're one of his followers. And he, go, he curses at him and says he's not. And he just completely turns his back on Jesus. Jesus is still really, really gracious. And we're going to see this, this guy who typically, while he lives a life of intentionality, there are times he's responding with reaction and conformity and definitely independence. So when you think about those four different ways to live, Simon Peter is one that modeled all of them. So we find Simon, and he's probably in his own boat, so because he's a fisherman. You know, it's interesting. I mean, will you pull that picture for me, Christy? I want you to see this boat. This is so amazing to me. Um, it'll come up in just a second, I think. So what, what happened? Yeah, see that boat? So in 1986, so crazy, there's a drought at the Sea of Galilee. And while there is a drought on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, these two brothers who were fishermen and, like, you know, amateur archaeologists, they stumbled upon this boat, that one right there, that was covered in, like, soot and, you know, mud and all sorts of stuff, and they found it. And then they it took them a while, and, you know, a lot of Christians and Jew, uh, Jews came kind of together and removed this boat from the Sea of Galilee, and now it's in a... Um, it's in a museum, right? That boat, which is uh, carbon dating and also this kind of the, the relics inside of it, there's some pottery that you can kind of date this boat to somewhere between uh, 40 B.C. and 40 A.D. So right around Jesus' lifetime, right, this boat exists. Now, there's no evidence that this was the boat that Peter used or that has any connection to Jesus, although it's called the Jesus boat or the Galilee, Galilee boat. But it's a, that boat is 27 and a half feet long, it has, area, it has options to row, and it also had a place to put a mast for a sail. So that, that's what the boat looks like. And so, uh, so interesting that, you know, technology hasn't really changed much. That's still how you make boats. That's what they look like. And you can bring that down. Thanks, Chrissy. Uh, and so, but, uh, so Jesus finds Peter and his boat, and he goes and gets on the boat. Now, what's going to happen is, you know, um, in terms of how audio sound travels, if you are up on top of someone real close and it's a crowded room and you're talking, there's people right in front of you, uh, what happens is that sound kind of hits them and bounces right back. So you only get, you know, the sound goes 10, 15 feet. So what Jesus is going to do is he's going to hop in this boat and he's going to pull out into the, the water a little bit so he can get some space so he can preach. And, you know, it's going to travel well across the water. And so Jesus was able to preach to thousands of people this way. And that sounds crazy, but even here, if you go back a couple hundred, three hundred years, a little less than three hundred years, um, just down the road at, uh, at White Clay Creek Presbyterian Church, one of our sister churches, um, there, right next to the church there's this big hillside where George Whitfield showed up and preached to 15,000 people or something crazy like that without a sound system, right? And so one of the things that uh, history will say is that George Whitfield had this powerful, booming voice, and he would preach and then he'd cough up blood, because that's what it did to the vocal cords, right? And so uh, this is before sound systems and PA systems, all those kind of things. And so Jesus is going to leverage the boat, the technology of the day, to preach this message. So he hops in the boat, and he's kind of out off the shore, and he is preaching. Got it? And he taught the people from the boat. Verse 4. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. So he just preached this long sermon, and then he looks out uh, to Pete, uh, Simon and goes, hey, let's go, uh, let's go catch some more fish. Come on, right? And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. We toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the net. So interesting. So it's like, look at him being obedient. But he's got to get that last word in. You see that? Oh, I mean, this is, a, this is a stupid plan, but fine, I'll do it, right? And so he goes, I've, I've, we've, we've toiled all night. We are exhausted. We did not catch any fish, and now you're telling me to go put my nets down again. Hey, Jesus, you're a carpenter. You build chairs and coffee tables. I fish. I'm actually really good at it. I have my own boat. You see, this, this is my boat, Jesus, not your boat. But okay, okay, because you say but at your word, I will, I will uh, let down the nets. So he's obeying, even if it's, you know, resistantly. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, 
and their nets were breaking. So this miraculous thing happens. He puts the nets back down. He does what Jesus says, and all of a sudden you see all these fish, all these fish, right? They signal to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. So lots, lots of fish. You got it? So they obey Jesus, which is always the right thing to do. Uh, you know, in the history of my life, I have lots of regrets, lots of them, but we don't have regrets about a lot of decisions I've made. But one thing I promise you, I have never, not once, ever regretted doing what the Bible says or what Jesus says. They're in, 39 years old. Like, I have a lot of life of really dumb decisions. But I've never, ever, ever, ever regretted doing what Jesus says. Ever. I've never, ever regretted it. It's always been good to do what Jesus says. And so, see this, Peter does that. Doesn't even want to, but does it. You see the significant moment. Lots of fish are, are received, right? So they, uh, and it says this, but when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at, at Jesus' knee, saying, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. So all of a sudden, Simon has this amazing moment, Simon Peter, and his response is going, I cannot even be close to you. I can't, right? I can't. Depart from me, for I'm a sinful man. Verse 9, 4. He and all who were with him were astonished at the catch that they had taken. Now, you read this, and it's like, oh, that's cute, but it, I don't feel like I can, like, color the picture in enough for you to see kind of the significance of this moment and this supernatural thing. And so, luckily, uh, there's this really great TV show out right now. I'd recommend it uh, called The Chosen. It basically is, it's episodic, right? So there's episode after episode of Jesus' life. It's done by a guy named Dallas Jenkins, and it is done at the best of all quality. By the way, I am absurdly concerned, and I think you are too, about uh, culture and what's happening in culture and what's being communicated through television shows, and I think at some point this is a good start. That the church has to get back in taking some of that culture back, right? Like, we should be the most creative people in the world. Like, we should be more creative than Disney because we have the Holy Spirit in us, right? We should be participating in the arts. There's lots of stuff we can do there. And so Dallas Jenkins has done that really, really good show, and I would recommend it, definitely recommend it. I think it just got picked up for a second season. If you go to, I think it's pureflix.com, you can watch it for free. So it's kind of crowdfunded. But I want, in it, there, in one of the, you know, the beginning episodes, we see this moment of Jesus inviting these first followers in. And so I just want you to watch it and get it from that experience. So here's a quick four-minute clip of this moment from Dallas Jenkins, The Chosen. Put, put that down for a catch. A little bit farther out. Uh, I don't have a quarrel with you, teacher. We've been doing this all night.
James and John, come, follow me. I'll take the fish into market and settle up Simon's death. I'll get some help to fill both of these boats. Are you sure? Yes, go. What will you tell Ima? <laughs> We've just been called by the man we prayed for our entire lives. And you ask me, what will I say when you miss supper? <laughs> go, now. So, uh, so we think about what's happening, this whole idea of Jesus for president. The kind of what we're understanding is that Jesus actually came to bring a new kingdom to this planet, right? In the beginning, we see a perfect world, and then you see humans just wreck the whole thing. And then we see Jesus come back and establish and rule and reign. And what's so crazy is the way by which he's going to rule and reign is through people. It's going to start with just a small invitation to go follow me. So we see it with Peter. Now watch this. Watch what happens next. And so, uh, for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch that they had taken. Verse 10 says this. And also, and so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Right? And so these guys are partners with Simon, share the boat. So now we have Simon Peter. We've got James and John. And it says, um, we're partners. And Jesus said to Simon, watch this. Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. So you go, well, why is he? Say, don't be afraid. Like, why, why would he talk about being afraid? Like, what is this? Like, see, he's not afraid of fish. He's not afraid of the boat. So what could he be afraid of? And what you got to see here when Jesus says, do not be afraid, this is a very significant moment, and it's an inclusive statement. Right? Because what they just did is they came face to face with the God of the universe. Face to face with the, the, the God who spoke the world into existence. So they are staring at him, and for the first time, they're starting to understand. That's why I love that moment. And it's not in the scriptures, but that, uh, John, James and John's dad says, Go. This is the person we've been praying for our entire life. Right? In this moment, at this moment, they come face to face with the God of the universe. And their only response in that is fear, right? Like when you are standing face to face with the God of the universe, that is a, a scary thing, right? That's why I shared this past week in overtime that there's, there's two different uh, parts of holiness, right? Or, or sanctification. That means to become like God, to, to become holy, to become all that Jesus has made us to be. There's two different approaches. One is positional holiness, meaning the moment that we are, Jesus invites us into him, the moment that we are given life from him, the moment we call Jesus Lord, we are positionally holy 
before God. God sees us as perfect and blameless because he sees us through Jesus, right? And so in this moment, it tells us in, in Colossians that we become holy and perfect and righteous in an instant that happens for us. But in my guess, for you and I, right, we don't feel holy and perfect. In fact, what I'm learning, the more I walk with Jesus, the more aware I am of how broken and messy I am, right? Because the closer you get to Jesus— the more you realize how dirty and broken you are compared to Jesus, right? Uh, white looks a lot more crisp when it's next to black or a, a dark color, right? And so you see these things. And so what happens in this moment, you got this positional holiness, right? You, you become perfect and righteous, but you have this other side, which is called progressive sanctification, progressive holiness. And this is that little by little, day by day, you become more and more like Jesus. We're going to see that in Peter's life. Little by little, boy, is he going to jump through reaction and conformity and independence. But little by little, he continues to be more and more like Jesus. But in this moment, he comes face to face with Jesus and his only response can be fear, trepidation. But you see what Jesus says? Don't be afraid. Right? He comes face to face with the creator of the world who has a plan. And Jesus says to him, don't be afraid. And how does he comfort him in it? Watch what he says. Four. From now on, you will be catching men. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. No, no, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid, Peter. Don't be afraid. Yeah, yes, yes. I'm perfect and holy, and I'm sure that's overwhelming for you to come face to face with this. But don't be afraid. Instead, he invites him into it. No, no, don't be afraid. Come join me. No, no, don't be afraid. Come, you, you get in on this. Hey, Peter, here's the crazy story. We're going to change the world. There's going to be a revolution of peace and hope and joy. And Peter, see all these fish? This is just a small glimpse of what's to come. It's a small glimpse. But the crazy part is, Peter, not only am I going to do these things, here's what's nuts. I'm going to do these things through you. I'm going to give you the authority. Right? This is the crazy part of the story. Is not only is God perfect and holy and righteous, and is he not, not only does he have a perfect plan, the crazy thing is his perfect plan includes you and I. Right? That, in my opinion, that seems really inefficient and unwise. Right? Like, why in the world would a perfect God invite us into his plan? Well, there's a reason. Because Jesus said he came to seek and save that which was lost. The whole plan for Jesus is that you and him would be together forever. So of course he invites you in. He invites Peter in because his goal was going, I want to be with you forever, and that starts now. So he invites them in, and then he says something to Peter really, really important. He goes, hey, hey, here's the thing. I'm going to actually use your life already. I'm going to use your story. I'm going to use those. Peter, you, you understand fish. You know how to fish, but all we're going to do is now we're going to give what you've done in reaction or conformity or independence. You think it's just to pay the bills. You think it's just to, you know, pay your mortgage. No, no, Peter. I'm going to take the things you already know and are good at, but I'm going to now, you know, redeem those things and give you purpose. So he's going, hey, I want to invite you into it, and I'm going to give you real purpose in it. Hey, Peter, no longer are you just fishing. Now you are fishing for man, meaning that your job is holy and perfect because that's what I'm inviting you into. So what you see here is, and I think this is really important, you go, how do you, how do you determine purpose? How do you find your purpose? And I would go, hey, you find what you're good at, find what you're passionate about, and find what the world needs. Where those three things intersect, what you're good at, what you're passionate about, and what the world actually needs, that, that's your purpose. Now, by the way, I'd add a fourth one. What you're good at, what you're passionate about, what the world needs, and what you can make money doing, right? So when those things intersect, that's a really good place to find purpose. So, hey, Peter, you're good at fishing. You like fishing. You, have a, you can do those things, and the world actually needs to know this story. So, Peter, all we're going to do is, you know, you're going to be a fisher of men. And then he says this. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left. See this? They left everything and followed him. See that word? This is really, really important. They left everything. I promise you. I told you, never, ever, I have a lot of regrets. Have I regretted obeying whatever God told, us, told me to do? Lots of regrets. And in this moment, what you see is they, they left everything. That word in the Greek means everything. That's what it means. They left everything. They walked away from everything they knew. Why? Because they had put their hope in things that could not sustain them. And all of a sudden, they walked away and they placed all their hope in Jesus. You've got to place your vote in a candidate, but you cannot place your hope in a candidate. They left 
everything. So about, hmm, I guess, 17 years ago, Julie and I, we were, uh, we were engaged, uh, dating at the time. And, uh, we ended up getting to go to Kenya for an entire summer, right? One of the most meaningful trips of my life. And so what we did is uh, we served missionary kids at a, at a local camp. And so we, we served missionary kids at a local camp. And the, 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 every year there's like a theme for the camp. And that year the, the theme was Fwata, which are follow in Swahili. And it was based on Matthew 4, 19, follow me for I'll make you fishers of men. So that was kind of, that, that was the theme of it. We were inviting all these kiddos to follow Jesus. And so we, we, we spent time with them kind of uh, in the camp week after week. New kids would come in. We'd, you know, we'd play, have games. I got to preach to them, all that kind of stuff. But then after kind of, a, I think it was like four or six weeks of sessions, we took a week and uh, traveled. And we ended up tra- uh, traveling to western Kenya, right? Still the theme, Fwata, follow. And what we did, <laughs> I've shared this with you before, um, what, we're a bunch of uh, umzungas, wh- white people, right? Uh, just a bunch of white people. And we would go into places where there weren't any white people. They'd never seen white people, like orphanages. I can remember, because Julie, you know, has really fine blonde hair. And, like, the little kiddos in the orphanage would just be, like, staring at the hair and, they would touch your skin and then look and see if it was like rubbing off on them. And that was just, you know, this is a, a strange thing. But one of the neat things were, were uh, when we traveled, we'd travel village to village. And in those villages, they all had their local soccer teams. Or, you know, like they had like their all-stars in the team. And so what happened is us white guys and gals would show up and we would play soccer against their, their, the village team, right? And, you know, we had cleats, and I played keeper, and so I had the fancy gloves on, and these guys are barefoot, and, they, you know, they got, a, they got a ball made out of, like, plastic bags, just completely different world. And so what we do is we would go, and we'd play them, and it looked a lot like the Harlem Globetrotters and the Washington Generals, right? We would just get destroyed, just crushed, and people would be laughing, and it was, I mean, like, it was like a big spectacle. At times, hundreds, if not thousand people would show up on these sidelines to do these things and so what would happen is we would go to the villages we would play soccer and then we um would then share the gospel we would offer an invitation right and so we had this big uh yellow land rover defender big yellow land rover defender and i would climb up on kind of the top of the side of it and i'd speak with a microphone and i'd just tell the story of who jesus is right no these are people who never had heard the story of Jesus. So I'd just tell the story of who Jesus is, and I would try to say funny things, which they didn't get. But luckily, we had a translator, a, a local pastor, Pastor Edwin. So I would speak in English. He would then translate in Swahili. Got it? <laughs> but what's interesting is I'd say like 10, 12 sentences, and he would say like 10 words. So basically, he was doing the preaching. I just was standing there talking. And so, but, uh, so I'd preach, and then he would translate, and people would sit and listen. They would stand and listen. They would just all stand there, hundreds, if not a thousand people, standing there. And so I'd preach, he'd translate. And then it got to the end where I would then offer an invitation, right? Like a, a literal prayer of inviting people to pray to have Jesus into their life. And what I invited them to do was actually pray out loud these words. And so I would, I would lead them in a prayer in English, Pastor Edwin would translate it to Swahili, and then they would pray the prayer. And I can, I mean, I can see it. I can see it right now where I was, where I was leading them in a prayer. Pastor Edwin was uh, inviting them to pray. And then as I was saying the next part of the prayer, they were speaking it out loud. And I'm talking about hundreds of people, like making this proclamation that Jesus is Lord. And I, it sounds so crazy. Go, ah, is, that, is that real? Is that fake? And I'm going, what, what was so crazy? So, so I was leading them in this prayer. I could still see some of their eyes. I could see... 80-year-old, 70-year-old women praying this prayer and watching, like, just tears, like, roll down their faces as they were making this proclamation that they wanted Jesus to be their Lord, right? And so I'd lead it, I could just, I can see it, just, like, absolute tears, absolute transformation, like, in an instant, like, instant positional holiness, in a moment. They were declaring Jesus as Lord, and in that moment, they, they were right before God, and they were they were finding him, and there was this, this emotion that was with it. And I thought about it so often because I came back stateside. I was a youth pastor, and, you know, each week I would do the dog and pony show, you know, where, you know, trying to preach, keep, you know, 14-year-olds' attention and share with them the gospel. And it just was weird 
like coming from that where you could just make this declaration and people were so drawn to it and you come back here and they're like is it time to go to out to eat yet right there's just this something missing and what i'm convinced is there they just understood that there was something missing right they just instinctively knew that there's something missing but they didn't have all these little trinkets to distract them with to think that was the thing that was missing you see we go thing to thing tv show to tv show job to job spouse to spouse house to house Right? We just, we just had this cycle of reaction and conformity and independence that we never actually paused long enough to understand there is actually something missing. And there, in that declaration of, hey, do you want to follow Jesus? They knew there is something off. And if you're telling me that's what it is, in that moment, they're like, yep, that's what I've been looking for. And so in this moment for Peter, he he's sees Jesus, and in an instant he goes, that is what I've been looking for. And he drops everything. Drops everything. And follows him. He takes everything, drops it, and just walks and chases after Jesus. And most of us have never done that. No, we're, you know, culturally Christian. We believe the things. You may have prayed the prayer. You read your Bible, do those things. But have you actually said that he is worth following with everything? Even if that means you feel a little awkward. Even if it seems uncomfortable at your workplace. Even if it seems uncomfortable leading your family in that, but have you actually considered what it means to follow Jesus? I promise you, hear me. Never ever will you regret actually doing that. And yet many of us don't do that and have so many other regrets. So Peter is going, I don't get it. I don't get it. I just fished, but okay, Jesus, if you're telling me to, I'll do it. I don't get it. That makes sense to me. That seems really hard. Oh, man. But okay, Jesus, if that's actually what you're telling me to do, then I'll do that. You see, because I think, wholeheartedly as we wrap up this, this series, the solution to our problems in our nation, right, I told you, our nation's sick because you and I are sick, right? The solutions to all those things, it all gets solved in one thing, fwata, by following, right? And so in some ways I want to like, you know, do this at passionate, please, 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 follow, 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 follow. But at some point it's going, hey guys, it really is that simple. It's leaving everything and following Jesus and taking everything you have and putting it in the hope and trust of Jesus and transitioning from whatever your occupation was to all of a sudden becoming a fisher of men. That's how revolution starts. And so what I want to show you, so, so my favorite video of, in the history of videos is this, the shortest TED Talk that there ever was. And it's by this guy named Derek Sivers, and it, it's on how do you start a movement or a revolution. So let me show you this, and then I'll make some comments, and then we'll sing a song together. But why don't you watch this video called The First Follower. If you've learned a lot about leadership and making a movement, then let's watch a movement happen start to finish in under three minutes and dissect some lessons. First, of course, a leader needs the guts to stand alone and look ridiculous. But what he's doing is so simple, it's almost instructional. This is key. You must be easy to follow. Now here comes the first follower with a crucial role. He publicly shows everyone else how to follow. Notice how the leader embraces him as an equal. So it's not about the leader anymore. It's about them, plural. Notice how he's calling to his friends to join in. So it takes guts to be a first follower. You stand out and you brave ridicule yourself. Being a first follower is an underappreciated form of leadership. The first follower transforms a lone nut into a leader. If the leader is the flint, the first follower is the spark that really makes the fire. Now here's the second follower. This is a turning point. It's proof the first has done well. Now it's not a lone nut and it's not two nuts. Three is a crowd and a crowd is news. A movement must be public. Make sure outsiders see more than just the leader. Everyone needs to see the followers because new followers emulate followers, not the leader. Now here come two more people, then three more immediately. Now we've got momentum. This is the tipping point and now we have a movement. As more people jump in, it's no longer risky. If they were on the fence before, there's no reason not to join in now. They won't stand out, they won't be ridiculed, and they will be part of the in-crowd if they hurry. And over the next minute, you'll see the rest who prefer to stay part of the crowd, because eventually they'd be ridiculed for not joining. And ladies and gentlemen, that is how a movement is made. So let's recap what we've learned. 
If you are a version of the shirtless dancing guy, all alone, remember the importance of nurturing your first few followers as equals, making everything clearly about the movement, not you. Be public, be easy to follow. But the biggest lesson here, did you catch it? Leadership is over-glorified. Yes, it started with the shirtless guy, and he'll get all the credit, but you saw what really happened. It was the first follower that transformed a lone nut into a leader. There's no movement without the first follower. See, we're told that we all need to be leaders, but that would be really ineffective. The best way to make a movement, if you really care, is to courageously follow and show others how to follow. When you find a lone nut doing something great, have the guts to be the first person to stand up and join in. So, we found ourselves in the scriptures. Jesus had just poured himself completely out in ministry. Poured himself out. Served others. Was with the least, the lost, the lonely. Poured himself out. What does he do? He goes and recharges. He goes and rests. He receives. And then he responds. And how does he respond? He goes and meets his first followers. And he invites them into this movement. What are they going to do? The same thing Jesus did. They're going to pour themselves out in ministry. They're going to leave everything they have and pour themselves out in ministry. And they're going to continue to do that. And Jesus is going to continue to invite more people into it. And little by little, day by day, and you'll see it over the next six weeks. More and more people are going to be invited into this crazy story. So that they can live on purpose, be fulfilled, and find joy and peace. And seek and save that which was lost. So what's going to happen, the band's going to come up here and we're going to sing a song. This is our invitation. Some of you might actually want to come up front and pray. You're welcome to do that here. You can, at any point, if that's what Jesus tells you to do, just follow him. So if you feel like you need to come and treat this place like an altar and offer yourselves in that way, that you're welcome to. Or maybe you're just going to sit still where you are and just really consider these words. What I would challenge you with is, think about these words as you sing them. Because they are challenging words. It tells us where he go, wherever he goes, wherever he calls us to go, we'll go. So this is, please, 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 this song, just sing the song just at the end for the purpose of singing. For just a second, would you consider these words? And if you so choose to receive the invitation, to receive the invite to go, yep, God, I will leave everything and I'll follow you, then respond with these words. And so would you stand with me as we sing? Go anywhere, anywhere, 
seasons, but in easy seasons and in all seasons. And we thank you guys for singing that and declaring that with us today. I wanted to send you guys off with a benediction, but before I do so, I just want to remind you, uh, we're starting a new wonderful series next week, God With Us, and I don't think there's anything more that we need to hear in this season uh, other than God is with us. And so we pray and we hope and we encourage you to come join us for that starting next week. But let me send you off with this passage, 2 Corinthians 13, 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind and live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us. We will see you next week.